remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to know what You have allowed us to know what you've revealed to us. And we ask that as we meditate on your word, on these scriptures, that your spirit who inspired them would work in us to believe them and to do them. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. God's purpose for God's people. In Romans 8.28, Paul writes the words we've all heard many times. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Two verses earlier, in verse 26, Paul said, We do not know what we should pray for. Now in verse 28, He writes, we do know that all things work together for good to those who love God. So, we do not know and we do know. One of the most important things in life is to be aware of what you don't know and aware of what you do know and should know. This is particularly true in the Christian life when it comes to the gospel and living it out, being a Christian. Concerning the details of what God is doing, the specifics of what He's doing in your life, in the world, we're mostly ignorant until it's unfolded in history and we see it. But even then, we look back and see it and we don't know why, much, of, uh, much about why. Uh, the details of God's purpose are above our pay grade. They puzzle us. We don't understand how they work together. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. Okay, so there are things that are revealed to us, but there are a lot of things that we just have to accept are going to be secrets to us. There are a lot of secret things about our lives that belong only to God and His knowledge. And that's a big part of why we don't understand what to pray for. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know the secret things. But the Holy Spirit does. And He lives in our hearts and He prays for us. He prays, He intercedes for us in our ignorance and in our weakness. So we don't know much about the details of God's plan 
But Paul says we do know what the overall plan is. God has a well-defined, well-thought-out purpose that he's working out in history, in our church, in your family, in your life. Paul says this pretty simply at the end of verse 28. And I invite you to open to Romans 8. At the end of 28, to those who have been called according to what? God's purpose. If God has called you according to His purpose, this means two things. It means God has a purpose, and it means that He has placed you in that purpose. He has a place for you in it. What's more, if you've been called according to God's purpose, you can know that God will work everything out for your good in His achievement of that purpose. So yes, there are some things we don't know. In fact, Paul says in verse 26, there are a lot of things we don't know. That's okay. We're weak, we're ignorant. But that's not the most important truth in this passage. What Paul says you do know in verse 28 is far more important. What you do know by faith eclipses what you don't know because it puts it all into perspective. It allows you to be okay with not knowing what you don't know. And yet, verse 28 poses some obvious problems. All things work together for good to those who love God. I mean, doesn't that sound a little bit like a cliche? If Paul hadn't written this, and somebody put it on the internet, you might be tempted to say that's just, a, you know, it's trite. It's a platitude. How can this be? Is this what you experience? Everything just works out for the good? Because you're a Christian? Because you love God? Does it ring true? How could Paul say this when the world is filled with hatred and evil and violence and curses and untimely deaths and suffering of the good and the evil? How is the mother who loses her nursing baby supposed to believe, verse 28? How is a businessman who loses everything supposed to apply this verse to his situation? Most of you who've lived very long can think of a lot of other situations, specific situations that are hard to make sense of in light of verse 28. Some of you may be experiencing circumstances right now that make it nearly impossible for you to believe, really, what Paul says here. Now, when times are good, when we have steady jobs, when our families are doing well, when no loved ones are sick and there haven't been any recent deaths, in those times, it's easier to believe this promise. But what about when it feels like it does for the the psalmist in verse 27 that we read? It's in your bulletin. What about when it feels like God has abandoned you? It feels impossible to to believe this. Like when you feel the way David felt also in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? Can you feel like that and believe the promise in Romans 8.28. It's a hard thing to do. 
It takes supernatural power to do it, in fact. It can only be done if God's grace is alive in you. But it can be done. It is possible in Christ. Now, to know how to apply Romans 8.28, we need to examine what it's saying and what it's not saying. This verse is a promise that is to be believed, but it has some built-in qualifications. Paul draws, he draws boundaries around the promise that limit and define its application for us. Specifically, there are four qualifications or boundaries, I'll call them, that we need to consider. Number one, the promise in verse 28 is for Christians only. The promise doesn't apply to everyone. Paul says that God works all things for the good of those who love him. He's talking about believers. And he reiterates this boundary in the second half of verse 28. He says that the promise applies to those whom God has called according to his purpose. And if we read on, we see in verse 29 that the promise only applies to those whom God predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That means it only applies to Christians. So, take a look at your life. Examine yourself. Is God making you more like His Son? Is God conforming you into the image and likeness of Jesus? Is that your trajectory? If so, you're a Christian, and you can therefore know that God is working all things together for your good. The promise is for you. It's for those who are being conformed to the image of Jesus. This is not a promise that all things work together for the good for all people. If you don't love God, and if you're not acting and talking like Jesus more and more all the time, then God is working, that God is not working everything for your good. These comforting words are for Christians only. It's exclusive. So the first boundary is that the promise in verse 28 is for Christians only. The second boundary is this. The main good in verse 28 is becoming more like Jesus. This boundary answers the question, what does Paul mean by good? The adjective good, we have to define that. What's he mean? If good means rich, as some would like it to mean, then Paul is wrong because many Christians have not been given a rich supply of the world's goods. The same could be said if good means healthy. Not all believers have good health. Some of the most godly people are sick or poor or both. And some of the most wicked people are wealthy and healthy physically. Likewise, good can't mean successful or admired or even happy. God asks many Christians to endure failure or scorn or distressing experiences or severe disappointments. Many of you here are experiencing these Now, even though you love God and you've been called according to His purpose. So, what does good mean then? 
It doesn't mean rich or healthy or successful or admired or happy or comfortable or pain-free. What does it mean? The answer is in verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what the main good is. Being conformed to the image or likeness of the Son of God. In other words, becoming more like Jesus Christ. Put simply. And is there any greater good for you? Think of one. Call it out if you find one. Is is anything better than that? No way. It's impossible to think of a higher good for you than that. It's what life is all about. Is that how you view what life is all about? Becoming more like Jesus? When you see that becoming like Jesus is your highest good, when you see that it's God's ultimate goal for you, you'll also be able to see that sickness, suffering, persecution, grief, disappointments, and trials can all be used by God for this highest good in your life. So number one, the promise in verse 28 is for Christians only. Number two, The main good in verse 28 is becoming more like Jesus. Number three, here's the third boundary. God works bad things together for your good. When Paul says that all things work together for your good, he's not saying that all things are good. You see the difference? Cancer is not good in itself. The death of a child is not good in itself. Being robbed is not good in itself sin sickness and death are enemies and we need to see them as such but if you love God if you belong to Jesus then God works all your enemies because he's sovereign over all of them together for your good he can do that you can't but he can In Romans 8.28, God's not asking you to somehow convince yourself that all the bad things that happen to you are good somehow. They're not good. God's just promising to orchestrate all the bad things in your life for your ultimate good. This promise isn't always visible, but it's always believable. You can't always see it, But by God's grace, you can always believe it. So the promise in verse 28 is for Christians only. The main good in verse 28 is becoming more like Jesus. Number three, God works bad things for your good. Finally, number four. You can always know that God works all things for your good, but you don't always feel it. You won't always feel it. Paul doesn't say that you'll feel the promise. Very often you won't feel it. For some events in your life, you might not ever feel the truth of verse 28, at least not very deeply. It might sink in to your feelings some over time, but maybe never fully in this life. In fact, sometimes what you feel might very well be the opposite of what verse 28 says is true. What you feel might in fact be the opposite of what Paul says is true in verse 28. 
Again, Psalm 13, Psalm 27, other psalms. It feels like you're being ground down or destroyed or abandoned. You can't feel the good in it and you can't see the good in it. Much of the time we don't perceive the good things God is accomplishing in us and for us. But that's not what the text promises, is it? It doesn't say we'll perceive it or see it or feel it. It says that we know it. That's the word Paul uses. We know. Paul was no sentimentalist. He had been persecuted, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. He had been attacked and slandered by the Gentiles and by his own countrymen. Paul didn't go around saying how wonderful the world was and how pleasant his missionary journeys were. On the contrary, he reported that he had been hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. So, So Paul wasn't naive. This is not coming from someone who hasn't experienced life posting on their Facebook wall. This this comes from a man who experienced grief. But Paul overcame the things that pressed him down and perplexed him and struck him down. How? By remembering and believing and knowing that God was working out for his own purpose in Paul everything for his good. God always accomplishes His purpose in His people and for His people. Paul always knew this. He always knew that God was working all things together for His good, but certainly He didn't always feel it. How could He have? Okay, so far we've looked at those four qualifications or boundaries. The promise in verse 28 is for Christians only. The main good in verse 28 is becoming like Jesus God works bad things together for your good. And number four, you can always know that God works all things together for your good, but you won't always feel it. And now that, we, now that we've established these boundaries, these limits, we can turn expectantly to the one phrase in this promise that has no boundaries, no qualifications, no limits whatsoever. What do you think it is? It's the term all things. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. All things that have ever happened and that will ever happen to you are so ordered and controlled by God that the end result is inevitably and utterly and undoubtedly, you're good. Even the worst things are used by God to make you like Jesus and to accomplish His purpose in His kingdom. There are three stories in Scripture that illustrate how God works everything for the good of His saints and for the good of His broader kingdom. 
First, let's look at the life of Joseph. Joseph's story shows how God controls circumstances, doesn't it? But it also shows how God hides the details of his plan from his people. Joseph was surely tempted at many points along the way to wonder whether God was doing anything good or redeemable in his life. As a young man, Joseph was favored by his father. He had a bright future ahead of him. His brothers hated him because of his righteousness and because of their own sin and envy. And they conspired to do away with him. At first, they threw him into a pit. and They planned to just leave him there to die. But, but when some Ishmaelite traders passed by, the brothers seized the opportunity. And they sold Joseph into, uh, into slavery. And the Ishmaelites took Joseph to Egypt and sold him to a military man named Potiphar. And Joseph, Joseph was only 17 years old when this happened. And he was now a slave in Egypt. In a very short amount of time, from the favored son to an Egyptian slave. Away from his family, where he couldn't even speak the language. But that wasn't all for a time he prospered as Potiphar's slave, but when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he refused, Joseph was accused of trying to violate her. He was thrown into prison where he spent the next two years as an abandoned and seemingly forgotten man. But you see, all of this, bad as it was, was actually Joseph's path to the throne. God was using all of this to raise Joseph to power in Egypt. In time, Joseph became the second most powerful man in the world. Second only to Pharaoh. And the way it happened is that while Joseph was in prison, Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret. And, or even figure out. So Pharaoh's chief Cutbearer, who had been in prison with Joseph two years before, remembered how Joseph had interpreted one of his dreams. So he told Pharaoh, and Joseph was removed from the prison. He was brought into the court before Pharaoh, where he explained Pharaoh's dream and interpreted it. Pharaoh was so impressed that he promoted this prisoner and former slave on the spot. Joseph was put in charge of the Egyptian grain harvests. In preparation for the famine to come, Joseph stored large quantities of grain. And in this way, Joseph saved the lives of many throughout the world. And on his way to becoming second in command in Egypt, so during, during that 13-year period, uh, that, that span from being a 17-year-old in his home, to being a 30-year-old man standing before Pharaoh and now ruling alongside Pharaoh. Joseph was hated and sold into slavery by his brothers. He was slandered and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was thrown into prison and he was forgotten about in prison by the cupbearer. But all of these things were used by God for the good of Joseph to prepare him to build his character and prepare him for what was to come. It was also for the good of others, for the good of the whole world. Scripture records Joseph's testimony about these events. Years later, Joseph and his brother 
are reunited. And some years after that, their father, Jacob, dies. And at the end of Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers become worried that Joseph might seek revenge now that their dad is dead. But Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, and it was evil. God meant it and used it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Now, back in Genesis 45, Joseph had said something similar on the day, the very day that he reunited with his brothers. In Genesis 45, 5, Joseph, Joseph tells them, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here. Keep that, notice that sent me language. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times Joseph says that God is the one who sent him into Egypt, into the, to the valley of the shadow of death. God sent him into the pit. God is not just standing by passively, allowing it to happen. He's not standing by passively as you walk through the valley. No, He's actively sending you through the valley. Just as God sent Joseph into slavery and into Egyptian, the Egyptian dungeon for all those years. God sent Joseph for his good and for the good of his kingdom. And God also sends you into difficulties, into trials for your good and for the good of his kingdom. God knows you and he loves you as much as he did Joseph. He has a well thought out purpose for all of the inexplicable circumstances in your life. He's got it all mapped out. He's already planned your steps But he hasn't revealed to you all the details of his secret purpose because the secret things belong to him alone. So your duty is not to try to figure it out. You're not supposed to try to figure out why God is sending you through this valley or that valley. You're simply called to walk through those valleys faithfully as Joseph did. The second illustration of this principle is the life of Job. From the world's viewpoint, the story of Job is one of the saddest in the Bible. Job was a mature and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. And really it doesn't seem fair what unfolds in the book. He had seven sons and three daughters, and his wealth included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys and he had many servants then suddenly in one day all this was taken from him raiders carried off the donkeys and oxen lightning killed the sheep bandits stole the camels and killed the servants finally a building collapsed and his children were all killed in an instant satan who was behind this stood back and expected job to curse God for his ill fortune, as did his satanic wife. Instead, though, in Job 
1, verses 20 and 21, Job says, after he falls down to the ground in worship, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the next stage of the story tells how Job was covered with boils from his head to his feet. Then his friends heaped on even greater pain by their shallow counsel. Job didn't understand much of this, maybe any of it at some points. He couldn't see or feel that his character was being developed or that Satan's so-called wisdom was being confounded in this story that he's living out. Job Job couldn't perceive how all things were working together for his good. The only way he could have known this was by faith in the goodness of God. And maybe he saw glimpses of that, but it became more and more difficult for him to even see that. Third illustration of how verse 28 works is Peter's infamous sin. In his pride and self-sufficiency, his prayerless self-sufficiency, if you remember that night, Peter told Jesus that while all the other disciples might deny him, Peter never would. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death, Peter told Jesus. And yet, on the night before Jesus was to go to the cross, he was sleeping rather than praying. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In his weakness, Peter did precisely what he had told Jesus he wouldn't do. He denied the Lord three times. And the last time it says with oaths and cursing. It's a window into how evil we can be. So what was the outcome? The immediate outcome was that Peter experienced a deeper regret and sorrow than he had ever experienced before. It was the same kind of regret that drove Judas to kill himself. It drove Peter to intense sadness and the text says bitter weeping. But this wasn't the final outcome. Eventually, Jesus worked Peter's sin for Peter's good. He interceded for Peter. Remember, he said, I'm praying for you. I've prayed for you already. He interceded for Peter so that Peter's faith would not ultimately fail. And he asked the Father to work all things together so that when Peter was restored, when he repented and he was restored, he would be stronger for his fall and better able to strengthen the brethren and feed the sheep. Here's what Peter ended up writing to other Christians in his first epistle in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 
if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful Creator while doing good. In Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul lays out God's plan for you. So He talks about the purpose. The last word of verse 28, remember, is the word purpose. Verses 29 and 30 explain that purpose. For whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that His Son might be the firstborn among many, among a lot of brethren. Moreover, whom God predestined, these He also called. Whom God called, these He also justified. Whom God justified, these He also glorified. Christian, your story ends in glorification. Here Paul's fleshing out that purpose. And it ends in glorification. That's God's promising that. He's got it taken care of. And no matter what, no matter what, it ends in glorification for those who love God. It began with God's foreknowledge of you. Paul says, God's foreknowledge of you is not just his knowing beforehand in the way we think about knowledge and for you know, coming before. God's foreknowledge of you is his eternal love for you and his eternal commitment to save you. It's not a love or a commitment that he has for every single human being. It's a love and commitment that he had toward you even before you existed. That's what the four means. Remember, knowledge in Scripture is not just head knowledge or knowing something, knowing a fact. It's intimacy, it's relationship, it's love, it's commitment. God's foreknowledge is His electing love for you. To be foreknown by God is to be loved and chosen by God before God even started forming you in your mother's womb. And what about those God foreknew? Paul says that God predestined or predetermined to make sure that they get conformed into the image of His Son. So it's interesting that what we typically think of as predestination uh, is actually in the word foreknowledge here, foreknew. That's what, that's what the foreknowledge here is His choosing uh, His people. And the predestination, the predetermination is something more specific. It, for, the, for those he foreknew, for those he chose and loved before the foundation of the world, he's predestined, he's predetermined to make sure that they get conformed into the image of his son. He's committed to that purpose for them. In other words, God's going to make sure that the events, the details in their lives have the effect of making them more like Christ. That way, the rest, the rest of that verse, that way 
Jesus will have lots of little brothers and sisters who look like him. He'll be the firstborn from the dead, is what that means, the firstborn among many brethren. Because God's going to make a lot of us to look like him, to be conformed into his image and therefore to be raised on the last day. He's kind of looking ahead to the glorification already here in the middle of this chain. So Jesus wants brethren, brothers and sisters. And those whom God predestined to become like Jesus, Paul says he called. He called. He called you out of the world. He called you out of the grave from death to life. And those God called, he justified. He made you right with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your justification is your being made right with God. Not by anything you've done, but by what God has done in Christ through the cross in his death and resurrection. And so when you put your faith in Jesus, when you unite yourself to Jesus, entrust yourself to Jesus, connect yourself to Jesus, his righteousness, his justification before God, which is in his own righteousness, in his own doing, becomes your righteousness, since you could never do it for yourself. So those whom he called, he justified. Through the blood of Jesus, and through faith in Jesus. And those he justified, he glorified. So your glorification is a future event. You'll be glorified when Jesus returns and raises you from the dead. This is, not, this is looking beyond even when you die and go to heaven. That's going to be glory, right? There's a certain glorification there. But that's not your ultimate glorification. Paul's looking to when Jesus returns and we're all raised from the dead and we get new bodies. Resurrection bodies that will experience no sin, no pain, no suffering, no sickness. And Paul's so sure of this glorification that he puts it in the past tense. So, this chain is all in the past tense. So the glorification's in the future, but he, he says, and they've been glorified. Okay, it, it's, it's a sure deal. This is God's purpose for God's people. This is, why, th- this is why Jesus went to the cross. This is what Christ won for you on the cross. Verses 29 and 30, really 28 to 30. Everything in verses 29 and 30 are yours in Jesus. And everything is working out so that this purpose, this process, this chain of events will be brought to completion in those who love God. So do you love God? Are you on board with God's purpose for you in verses 28 to 30? Especially verses 29 to 30. Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you have any desire whatsoever to grow in Christ? Do you want to become more like Jesus? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Do you want to be glorified when Jesus returns? Is that your hope? Is that where you're putting your hope? If you love God, know that He's working everything out to serve this purpose for you. This chain of events for you. From your sanctification to your glorification. From your salvation to your sanctification to your glorification. 
You may not see it. You may not feel it. You may not perceive it. But you can always know it, and you can always believe it. And it's, in fact, you ought to because it's your lifeline. If Romans 8, 28 to 30 is true, and of course it is, what could ever come into your life that can defeat God's plan? There are many things that can defeat human planning. Our plans are often overturned by our failures, by the opposition or envy of others, by circumstances, or by our own sin. But not God's plan, because He's the sovereign God. His will is forever being done exactly as He ordained it to be done. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can happen to you that can defeat God's purpose in you and for you and for His kingdom. Therefore, you can go on in life in confidence even when you are perplexed and cast down. Look at the next verse in Romans 8, verse 31. Paul asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's right. Thank you. God's for us. If, if, if God's going to accomplish these things that we've been talking about, that Paul's been talking about, does it really matter who or what your enemies are? Now, I know, I know some enemies, some difficulties are hard. Uh, that, that doesn't change. But do they compare to who's on your side? If God is on your side, what can happen to you that can defeat God's purpose? Can a thorn in the flesh thwart God's plan? Paul had a thorn in his flesh, but God's grace was sufficient for him. And it was in Paul's weakness that God was glorified. And Paul realized, oh, this was to help me to not be conceited. And it was also so that God's strength would be worked out in me. So there's more strength now. What about sickness? Job had boils, but God glorified himself in Job's sickness and he matured Job. Job has a different perspective at the end of the book. And it's a more, far more mature perspective. He realizes how myopic he had been. What about the arch enemy? Death. Can death really hurt you? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God has set things up so that your death, if you love God, will be an, an, will be an advance in His overall purpose for you. It's just, it's, it's one of the steps on the way to that final point, glorification. Sure, you'll leave people behind. But if they love God, he'll work even your death for their good. So even the arch enemy, death, God works out for our good. I'm going to leave you with the words of God in verse 32, the next verse. Look at Romans 8, 32, or you can listen. 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the promise that you showed to Paul and that Paul has shown to us, that you've shown to us through Paul. Help us to know this promise and to believe it, even when we don't experience it or feel it or see it. Increase our faith so that we can live in terms of this promise. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.